The Otlove's Pass, Yip Godard, and D.B. Cooper. Stories of mysterious disasters and tragic disappearances. How did things go down, and how do we manage? Welcome back. I'm your host, Owen Packham, joined once again by co-host Sammy Hoffman. Happy to be here again. Thank you so much. Yeah, we really loved recording this podcast for you last time. Um, this one I'm super excited about. Sammy is not as excited, but I'm sure he loved researching. Oh yeah, it's so much fun researching this. I know you love researching stuff that you don't like. Got some real fun stuff to tell you guys today. But since he chose last time, I gotta choose, I gotta choose this one. And obviously, I went with mysteries, because <laughs> I love mystery stuff. So, uh, let's get into the first mysterious disappearance of the day out of three. The Otlovs Pass. A team of ten Russian hikers from Ural Polytechnical Institute, is the name of the university, they were going on a hiking trip up a mountain for their final rank in mountain climbing. These guys almost talked to you. Almost, like, you know, top of the class. So they're, like, very experienced. They've, like, been on, like, yes. multiple hikes before this and whatnot. Yes. They have done tons of research about what they're going to do, know exactly what they're going to do, and they will most likely, um, in the worst-case scenarios, um, be prepared for it. Which makes this even more mysterious. Because why would very experienced climbers uh, go missing? The team of 10 started their trek to the Ural Mountains between the 1st and 2nd of February, 1959. Except one of the team members, Yuri, got very sick and had to stay at the base of the mountain in a small little village. Which really sucks. Poor guy. Like, he just he, missed out on the whole trip. Yeah, he's gonna get like his, his, his final medal or like honor for doing an awesome mountain climbing expedition. And he gets sick and has to stay behind. By the way, he's the only one who survives this, which really sucks. <laughs> I guess that's kind of lucky for him, then, I guess. I mean, probably a lot of traumatic stuff. Like, you're the one who's left back at the base, and then all your friends die. I would be scarred for life. That would be horrible. Um, they head up the mountain. They, they start their climb up. They pass a couple of trees. Um, they, they start like on kind of like just a regular hiking trail until they get to a place where they have to start actually climbing up the mountain. Now, this was something that really damaged them because when they got up, the weather got extremely bad, and it was also getting dark really fast. So, the team's leader, Diatlo, had to make a choice whether to go back down and set up camp somewhere safe, or take the risk and stay kind of up where they were exposed to like wind and stuff. So, he decides he doesn't want to backtrack, He's lazy, like me, and would never go back from what you've just started. So he decides to set up camp, does, stay the night, no one hears for them for the next four days. Four days. Yeah. That's how long it took for people to, like... Because they told the Institute before they left that if they, did, if they were not heard from in, like, four to five days, something most likely happened to them. And something did. Uh, the search party went, and um, they found nothing on their first search for them. Uh, it took another two months before they found the camp and the first two dead bodies. Wow, that, that took a real jump there. <laughs> yeah, this is why it's missing persons, but um, they were found dead, which still means they were missing, and the way they died is very interesting. 
When they found the two dead bodies, there was a broken branch suggesting that one of them tried to climb it. There was a remain of a fire, remains of a fire, and they had burnt hands. So in the heat, they also died of hyperthermia. They suggested that they could have burnt their hands in the fire while they were trying to heat up. Uh, the fire failed, and they, and well, it didn't fail, it just ran out. But they died of hyperthermia. They had a couple of bruises. One of them had bruises on his foot, which could explain the broken branch, why they also think he climbed up it. Um, but the camp was even more of a mystery when they first found it. It was covered in a bit of snow. The tents were all um, op- like cut open from the inside. Their, their, all their luggage and everything they brought up, except for a couple of clothing, which we'll get to, was still in the tent. So, like, they weren't wearing, like... They were wearing next to nothing besides their underwear. Why? Sounds like... That's the most mysterious part. Like, why would you, first of all, cut open your tent? There's zippers, right? Yeah. It doesn't seem likely... Like, a zipper would probably take even longer than, like, something that, like, flaps open. Like, you think maybe you'd want to, like, if you were running away or you had to get out of somewhere, like, out of the tent, you would definitely use the door and not destroy the tent just in case you have to go back. So were there signs of a struggle? No. When they, when they got to the camp, they noticed footprints going in all directions. Four, there was about four and another three. So four went off in a completely weird direction. Three went off to the right of the camp. And two, the two dead bodies they found, was leading like a way kind of, if I were to put it, south. They eventually did a bunch of research and footprints that were leading away from it showed no signs of struggle. It was not any footprints that indicate they were running or jogging. It was a nice, steady pace. So they just cut open the tech tents, right? Yeah. With next to nothing on. Yeah, and they just and they just walked, walked away. away. Exactly. That's crazy. It's insane. The next four bodies were found, uh, buried under mounds of snow, and they were all facing... It looked like they were walking back towards the tent, meaning whatever had happened, they maybe thought it was done. So they found the bodies, um, they had bruises, they died of hyperthermia. There was nothing really special about these ones. These were kind of the four that were just found under snow, died of hyperthermia, really easy. Um, they found them by tracking, obviously, the footprints. Then the next, the, the remaining three they had not found took another month to find, as they were found in a ravine, in a little, in a little cave in a ravine. In this cave, there was the three bodies... There was three bodies. Each of them were very severely injured, more than the other ones. Um, and one of the people's tongue was cut off. It was not... They don't think it was bitten off. They think it was from a knife. But it was only one of them. That was the most mysterious part. Also, with the three bodies, they found torn clothing. So, while I did say some of the clothes were missing... These people that were found in the cave were wearing torn clothing around their feet and their hands. So it indicated they probably, they did die of hypothermia, but it does indicate that they knew they had hypothermia because sometimes with hypothermia, you think you're super hot um, and you think you're so warm and you need to get cold as like getting the cold is. Like you feel like you need to get warmer. Uh, These were experienced climbers. They probably knew what hypothermia was, meaning that they knew to put on some sort of clothing. Which is weird, because why didn't they take their clothing in the first place? We'll get on to the first theory now, because we kind of laid down all of the... Groundwork. uh, The groundwork, right. The investigation. 
The first theory uh, came from an American skeptic, Arthur Benjamin Bradford. He created a story. I'm going to read it off, so just know this isn't me paraphrasing it. This is the legit story that he created. Uh, the group woke up in a panic and cut their way out of the tent either because of an avalanche had covered the entrance to their tent or because they were scared that an avalanche was imminent. Better to have potentially repaired slit in a tent than risk being buried alive in it. They were poorly clothed because they had been sleeping and ran to, and ran to the safety of the nearby woods, where trees would help slow oncoming snow. In the darkness of the night, they got separated into three groups. One group made a fire, hence the burned hands, while the others tried to return to the tent to recover their clothing since the danger had passed, but it was too cold. They all froze to death before they could locate their tent in the darkness. At some point, some of the clothes may have been recovered or swapped from the dead. But at any rate, the group of four whose bodies were most severe, severely damaged were caught in an avalanche and buried under four meters of snow. More than enough to account for the compelling natural forests the medical examiners described. Dubaninas is the guy. I probably butchered that name, but that was a guy who had the tongue. His tongue was completely removed. They just related that to basically being animals. The evidence doesn't quite make sense. Um, if it was an avalanche, the most of the bodies, not just some, would have been buried under mounds of snow. Now, the four bodies that were found under snow could suggest an avalanche, but most likely not because the other two bodies that we discussed with the burned hands were not under snow. They were just found next to the remains of a campfire. Most of the geography on the mountain did not suggest there could have been an avalanche. It was almost impossible. Not saying it was impossible, but it was pretty darn close. So there was just a lot of evidence that showed that there was not an avalanche on this mountain. Yeah. But, but that's just one of the theories. Yeah, this is probably the most well-known and the, the one that people take the most. Okay. Uh, other problems with this theory uh, exclaim that there wasn't really signs of an avalanche. It was kind of just the press's way and the investigation's way of making it, making a story out of it so the media would probably shut up. So they would just forget about it, you know? Yeah, it was just something to keep them off their back. Other theories include infrared sound. What's this infrared one, sound? So infrared sound. You don't know what infrared sound is? <laughs> right, to describe is, is it. Is it like sound that's red? Yes, Sammy. Infrared sound is sound that is red, thus described by Samuel Hoffman today. <laughs> Thank you for joining the podcast. We are not experts, we have no clue what we're talking, that is a quick disclaimer. It was infrared sound. Infrared sound is basically a type of noise that damages the human ear. How this was caused on a mountain, you may ask, is by the wind surrounding the mountains hitting at such high speeds and at the right angles that it produces a sound that can cause humans to have panic attacks. Oh, I think I've actually heard about that. Uh, can't that same sound also cause avalanches? I feel like I've heard something. Like, something about that. Somewhere. Yes, a loud sound can create avalanches, but, again, there was no suggestibility about an avalanche. I'm not saying that there would have been an avalanche. I'm just... Yeah, it could have caused It could have caused an avalanche. Right. Um, but it turned out that it most likely wasn't that as... It would give you a panic attack, but these were experienced hikers. They would have known to at least put on shoes and socks before they left their tents to try to get away from it. Also, the four bodies that were leading away from it, it was thought that they were getting away from the sound. And once they thought they were done, like the sound was over with, 
they were going back up to their tent. Why they cut open their tent also doesn't make sense. And probably the biggest one is why the heck was the guy's tongue cut off? <laughs> it just makes zero sense. Two more, two more theories suggest something to do with the government. This theory claims that there's parachute mines that go down, or it's they were in the area of parachute mines, which you guys didn't know is a mine that explodes in the air and does not hit the ground. Obviously, doesn't make sense because they would find evidence of this, but they did not, because you'd probably find shrapnel from the blown up bombs. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah, the bodies do have some evidence of this by their obviously very bruised tissue. So an explosion could be a possible explanation. Maybe, most likely not. Um, short theory is a Yeti. We obviously know it's not true. We'd find footprints, <laughs> but that's my favorite one. The last theory suggests that the governments were working with some sort of noise radioactive device. That's the best way I can describe it, because the name is horrible. It suggests that they were testing this weapon on the hikers. On the bodies, they apparently found traces of radiation. They also noticed that their hair was discolored and that most of their skin was gray. Now, this is a sign of actually mummification, just the process of decomposing the bodies. It happens while the radio, the radioactivity that was apparently found on their bodies is really weird. It doesn't suggest a weapon that is suggested in this theory. This theory is basically suggesting an ultimate weapon that can cause people to lose their crap. Like, if you imagine, this thing could, like, make you do whatever it wanted it to. So, it just makes zero sense, but it's really funny when you get into, like, the details of it. Because obviously someone created this story and was like, This is pretty hard to believe. Yeah, no, right? no. But, like, the person who made it had to have been like, Yes! Oh, it makes so much sense, obviously. It's the government. It all makes sense now. It's the government! <laughs> That's kind of the end of the story. Still unsolved. Don't know what happened. They did reopen the investigation as it was closed down recently in 2017. So maybe we could get answers, but most likely not, because it's been a long time and evidence is probably gone. That was a really great story, man. I really enjoyed that. Thank you. I enjoyed researching it. It was one of my favorites. Oh, yeah? Yeah. I'm excited for your next story. Next up, I have a story about this Frenchman. His name is Yves Gadar. Difficult name. Very difficult name. I saw you struggle with that in the intro. Yeah, how's, how's it spelled? <laughs> Y-V-E-S Goddard. G-O-D-A-R-D. Very, very weird name. So easy. I guess probably not weird for French. So easy to, mis to pronounce. Very, very I'm, I'm surprised they even struggled with it. Could have been better. Anyways, he was born in Paris on June 2nd in 1955. And he struggled in life, basically, for much of his pre-adulthood. He was financially in debt for most of his life, and he had a lot of career mishaps. And so he decided to enroll in a faculty of medicine in a place called Caen in France, because that's where he was. Right. Along the way, he married a Regine Tronel. I think that's how it's pronounced. It's a French names are really hard to pronounce for me. Don't I don't, worry about it. I have no it. clue why. Don't worry about it. It probably is what you said. Hopefully. <laughs> I have no clue. Anyways, they had two children, two sons, actually. And it is uncertain how well-structured their marriage really was, but it didn't really go well, and they split up eventually and went their separate ways. As happens, it happens with marriages. Yves was really, really devastated by this. Like, you know what I mean? He just, like, he broke up with his wife, like... When your woman leaves you, and then you're in the shower, fully clothed, crying? 
I mean, uh, when you're when you get uh, divorced and you're okay with it. That sounded really personal. Are you okay? Then, no, buddy? it's nothing. <laughs> Don't worry about it. All right, we'll, we'll pretend we didn't hear that. All right, I've just had one too many showers with clothes. Okay, on. we we get the point. Okay, back to the story. Yves's life takes a turn for the worst, and he decides he wants to try and change change it. Right. So mm-hmm. what he does, he opens up a pharmacy. This only furthered his financial debt because his illegal drug use type thing, right? Oh, he was supplying illegal drugs? Yeah, it was really bad, right? Because he he thought they would better aid his patients. As all doctors do, because when in doubt, give them drugs. As one does, right? Basically, the French government, they were like, no, we're not allowing this. We're going to suspend your medical license for around three months and basically destroy your entire life. So, government. He was devastated. He, he was trying to build his own business up from scratch, was going very well, he was very going, getting semi-successful, and then they just shut him down. Makes sense. Hey, I mean, that you... really sucks, though. You put in, like, a ton of hard work into something, and it just ends up going down the drain because some government is like, hey, you're illegal doing illegal drugs. drugs, that's not okay. Yeah, what, what, what the heck? <laughs> so basically, right, the government's taking his entire business from him. He has no clue what he's going to do. The only thing he's certain about is he is in love with his new wife, Marie. New love, new She's life. She's going to try to get him through this complication. His heart's ready to be broken again. Of course it is. As we will find out soon enough. Anyways, she tries to jumpstart his career again in the medical field. He tries to get support from all his medical buddies. His bros in the bros, medical field. And they're like, nah, fam, we're gonna, we're, nah, we don't want anything to do with you anymore. So basically... They shut him out? Yeah. He's an outcast now. Dude, that sucks. When your medical buddies won't talk to you because he you is sold losing them. his crap because you sold illegal drugs. Mm-hmm. But yeah, they're trying to jumpstart his career back into something they can earn them a living, support their children because they're both widows. They're both widows, right? Marie, she brought along two children, a son and a daughter. So his family's gone up. So he has two children with Marie, and he has two children with his other wife that we don't really talk about. <laughs> She doesn't really matter. She's not to be discussed. She's just part of his, his earlier life, you know? So basically, his new wife, Marie, and him try and jumpstart their career, right? Because he, he recently got remarried again to Marie, right? How many wives do you end up having? Uh, only two. This is his last and final wife. And they're both widows, so she has two children that she brings to the family from a previous relationship. One son and one daughter. And they try and bring his career back to light, try and make a little living so that they can give their children better life and it doesn't go well marie tries to assist him for a while but she eventually leaves him to do his little thing and she pursues her own interests yeah she right? takes she takes her own she takes it into her hands and kind of just exactly so so ye right he starts to get really depressed because his life is just a massive piece of crap yeah it's been going so south for him he doesn't know what to do his mood also affects his wife and she starts to go and see a therapist about her feelings and tries to kind of lose her depression. However, this is where it gets kind of weird. She starts to feel feelings for her therapist. <laughs> wow, that... This guy's life sucks. <laughs> and so one night, they said that they had an argument. This was before they disappeared. Before right. they disappeared, they had an argument. And presumably it was about the husband finding her diary and confronting her about it. They had an argument about it, and this is the last time anyone would ever hear from Marie ever again. Marie? So his wife just vanishes. Not vanishes. 
she's just never heard from again. And it, it was presumed that uh, Eve killed her. Seems like he just lost his mind. He is out of it. He is done. He's depressed. He's done with everyone. And so the following day, they leave for their trip because they were going to take a trip the night before, but then they had the argument and then everything went down. It was really bad, but they went on their trip and their neighbor, who was entrusted to look after all their stuff, claimed to not have seen Marie enter the car with them. And she, it was like she was never even there. And so they left for their trip. And they went to a coast, and they rented a boat called the Nick. The Nick. Uh, they depart on a cruise. They're gonna. They're planning on going to an island, or it was planned that they were gonna go to an island. They told the shipmaster that rented them the Nick that they would be back in a couple days, probably like a month. Oh, oh, I see where this is going. Okay. Yeah, they they never returned. Is there... That's it? They just... No one... It was like, that was the last conversation. That was the last conversation anyone ever had. So his whole entire family... Disappeared. It was a... Disappeared. They, they're all gone. A couple months later, when they didn't reappear, uh, a case was opened to search for them, right? The first thing they did was they went to Yves' house, where they discovered puddles of blood on the wall and on the floor. Did the, uh, did the guy who saw them right before they left see his wife? No. He did not see his wife. Ah. <laughs> no one saw the wife. Did they ever find the body? Nope. If she did die? They oh. never found the body. It still hasn't been found to this day. That is interesting. Yeah. So, it was presumed that he threw his wife's corpse into a waterway. And Body's that's filthy. how... Yeah. But wouldn't that be that's what they. That's what they claimed, which is why oh. I find that a little hard to believe, but... Right. No one really knows what happened mm-hmm. to her body. It was presumed that the missing persons case was now... A attempted homicide. Woo! Multi-attempt homicide case. Nothing really happened in the case for a while. They were trying to find stuff. They couldn't really find stuff. But then a couple months later, washed up ashore on... Around the place where the island was that they were planning on going on the trip, multiple belonging, belongings of Eve's crews washed up ashore, including two skulls. Oh, that's not... That's nothing. That's not what you want to see. What, no. about, what about the boat, though? The boat? No. Never been found. So for so only two heads, were, only two skulls were found. There were two skulls and a life raft and a couple clothes that washed ashore. All of them being kind only of, the skulls. Only the skulls, no other body parts. What? Yeah, that makes zero sense. Yeah, it's really weird. So the fisherman who actually discovered them, he was so shocked by just like imagine if you just found a skull and just randomly washed ashore. That would be horrifying. Yeah. And so, in his shock, the fisherman actually threw the bigger of the two skulls, presumably uh, Eve's skull, back into the ocean, which has still never resurfaced to this day. <laughs> this fisherman <laughs> finds two skulls. The first thing he does, grabs the biggest one, and he's like, <laughs> what the heck? And he just throws it out. He's like... Doesn't seem very smart, but then he reports it in, and it was discovered that the smaller of the two skulls was Eve's son. He made the right call, he reported everything to the authorities, and they eventually ID'd everything back to the case. We're slowly piecing together a story, right? But they never really did. Nothing else appeared for many months. I mean, eventually, more bones washed ashore, which were uh, decided to be, to be Yves' remains, the rest of his remains, and that's basically but everything. He still had, like, that ever one son on there. Yeah. That, like, apparently they... Probably didn't find anything about. No, they didn't, they never found anything about. Is, how did they die? No one, one, it's no just, one really knows. It's a big. That's it's a mystery. Were there any theories, or is just like they didn't really have anything to go off of? 
Uh, there were a couple theories. One of them by an author. Uh, she claimed that either one of she she had two ideas that either he was drove mad by his wife's betrayal of him, and that's why he carried out all of this, and maybe even committed suicide and brought his children down with him. Or the other of the two theories was that this is the one I believe more personally was that his crippling debt was catching up to him and he wanted to restart his life. But however, when he told his wife Marie, this was like another theory of what the argument was about that they had the night before the trip. When he told her that he wanted to restart their lives, she really didn't want to. And that's when he had to dispose of her so that she couldn't tell anyone. That's actually a pretty good theory. Right? Because it was believed that... So he, he was tied to a bank account. Right. He also had a fake identity tied to that bank account. Okay, this guy, he sells, he sells Set legal drugs. in Russia. Russia, man, what the heck is Russia. going on over there? But yeah, those are the two theories, and until more evidence uh, comes up, that's all there and ever is. Was this like, case. Is this case, like... It's closed currently, yeah. until more evidence pops up, if that ever happens. Could happen, but I find that one. Sammy, for our next story, I'd like you to close your eyes and pretend like you're watching a film. It's the afternoon. November 24th, 1971, a nondescript man calling himself Dan Cooper approached the counter of Northwest Orient Airlines in Portland, Oregon. He used cash to buy a one-way ticket on flight 305 bound for Seattle, Washington. Thus began one of the great unsolved mysteries in FBI history. Cooper was a quiet man who appeared to be in his mid-40s, wearing a business suit with a white with a black tie and white shirt. He ordered a drink, bourbon and soda. <laughs> While the flight was waiting to take off, a short time after 3 p.m., he handed the stewardess a note indicating that he had a bomb in his briefcase. He wanted her to sit with him, but uh, she didn't read it. <laughs> Take a spell of the movie for a bit. Uh, she did not read it, because back then it was kind of a thing where businessmen would uh, write maybe like a pickup line, like, hey baby, me, you, uh, what's it called, Mile, <laughs> Mile High Club, let's do it. But uh, she did not read it. Uh, back to the story. The stunned stewardess did as she was told when he asked her to sit next to him. Opening a cheap Atachi case, Cooper showed her a glimpse of a mass of wires and red colored sticks, dynamite, and demanded that she write down what he told her. Soon, she was walking a note to the captain of the plane that demanded four parachutes and $200,000. Oh my god. Yeah, it's quite a lot. <clears throat> when the flight landed in Seattle, the hijacker exchanged the flight's 36 passengers for the money and parachutes. Cooper kept several crew members and the plane took off again, ordered to set a course for New Mexico. Somewhere between Seattle and Reno, a little after 8 p.m., the hijacker did the incredible. He jumped out of the back of the plane with the parachute and the ransom money. The pilots landed safely, but Cooper had disappeared into the night. His ultimate fate remains a mystery to this day. Movie out. That's, that's a very dramatic movie. <laughs> this guy was never found. He got away with it. $200,000. Now, I was told by Max that the $200,000 was probably paid. Because, uh... Usually, ran they have like a storage of ransom money that they can track if they give it to people, so it probably wouldn't have worked as money. Uh, this guy's name, as they do say, uh, D.B. Cooper, was most likely not his real name. So, Cooper, if you're listening, we'll find it out. 
He jumped off, never seen again. No one knows his real name. Uh, he was wearing the sunglasses, nice white shirt. He was in coach class. Didn't get anything really like amazing, but they did find the money. In 1980, a young boy found a rotting package for $20 bills, 5,800 and all, that matched the ransom money serial numbers. Uh, so that's apparently how it was found. So they found the money, but this guy was never found. By the five-year anniversary of the hijacking, uh, they had considered more than 800 suspects and eliminated all but two dozen from consideration. That's a lot of suspects. This guy was like the biggest mystery of all all time and like i don't get how like i guess he was wearing sunglasses but like the stewardesses couldn't even like give a good enough description to the point where they could even find a guy i mean i guess if you're under that much stress like there's a guy with a bomb in your plane what are you supposed to do this has been one i think of three successful hijackings despite numerous attempts to find db cooper's identity it remains a mystery to this day you know that reminds me of Kind of reminds of, kind of reminds me of us. You right? No, you right. But you know who can help us? Who who? Tell me who can help us out. May I enlighten you? Our esteemed viewers can. We would greatly appreciate it if you would share this podcast with your friends. If you don't want, or if you don't have any friends, then you're dead to us. Watch it, but just know you are dead to us. We hate you. <laughs> that is a great message to end this episode on. I'm so happy we got that out. Thank you guys so much for listening, and we'll see you next week on How We Manage. Perfect, we're good, we're done. We did it.